Gun violence is on the rise in major U.S. cities, including Seattle. Here in King County, there's been a 44% increase in fatal shootings in the first six months of this year, compared to the average over the past three years. The vast majority of victims are men of color, more than 40% under the age of 25. The increase in gun violence is unacceptable. And too many of the victims are young men of color. We have to stop that cycle, too. With the defunding of the Seattle Police Department, Mayor Jenny Durkin says the city can't lose sight of making investments into efforts to curb the violence. And the best way to do it is scaled investments in things like education justice, access to affordable housing, access to health care and then having trusted community partners who know families. Those investments have been held up amidst the political tug of war between the mayor and the city council. Meantime, there is growing anger in South Seattle where too many of the shootings are happening. I'm tired of seeing mamas crying, daddies crying, children crying, brothers and sisters crying on a continuous basis because they're so traumatized of the loss that they're consistently feeling. Dominic Davis of Community Passageways and other groups working to stop the gunfire staged a mock funeral recently in South Seattle to draw awareness to the violence. Coming up, we talk with Davis about what's behind the shootings and the frustration of being caught in the middle of a public safety budget battle as the violence continues. This is Life on the Margins. I was born in the Central District, raised in the South End. I'm a homegrown kid, yep, 206 living. Used to play flyers up when I lived up on Union. Pushed it out to Orcas, and eventually the Kenyans didn't have much... Welcome to Life on the Margins. I'm Enrique Cerna. And I'm Marcus Harrison-Green. Well, Marcus, uh, amidst the pandemic, the craziness of what's happening in the election time, and the president being in the hospital, and all of the... <laughs> Just strange things happening there. We have a very serious problem of gun violence, not only in Seattle, but across major cities in the country. But here, it's really happening a lot in South Seattle, your neighborhood. Yeah, Enrique, I mean, and this is a situation where so many people talk about pandemics that have you know never ceased and never abated. I mean, gun violence is certainly an issue. Many people don't know or maybe some do. I, I did write about it uh, three years ago. I had a friend who was close to me who was a, a victim of, of gun violence, and he died, uh, Latrell Williams. And this has certainly been a topic that is heavy on my heart and continues to be. And it just seems, again, that we are back here again, you know, and we've been having the same conversations in 2020 that we've had in 2010. And I, I just don't know how we solve this, right? Where is the will coming from our political leadership to really solve this issue and this problem? There are people who are dying right now. There are family members who don't have sons, don't have daughters now because of gun violence. And the only people who seem to care live in South Seattle or South King County. Right? When can we get to a point where what happens in South Seattle impacts the whole entire rest of the city? King County Council Member Gurmai Zahalai uh, made a, a wonderful point that in January, when there were those shootings that took place in downtown Seattle, and it, it seemed like the entire city was on full alert, right? It was because it took <laughs> took place in downtown, in downtown Seattle, Seattle versus right. South Seattle. Yeah. I mean, it just goes to show you, right, the, the discrepancy in care and empathy and sympathy 
when something takes place in a predominantly, you know, in a neighborhood that's predominantly of color versus an area that is not. And this just needs to stop. It just and, and you know, it's a lot like what we're learning about with COVID and the disparities that we see with healthcare and communities of color and racial disparities uh, across the board. And like COVID, it's been going on for a long time. Uh, it's been there. It's nothing new. But yet this continues to happen. So let's turn now to uh, Dominique Davis, someone that you, you know well and who's active uh, in trying to curb the violence as the head of Community Passageways, a nonprofit that's trying to deal with the gun violence there, but also trying to uh, make lives better there for particularly young black and brown men. Yes, and he is a man who we call in the, the neighborhood affectionately Coach Dominic Davis, not only because he coaches football, but also the, the man is just a, a wonderful life coach to, to many people. He seriously works tirelessly, Enrique, to try to make our community a better place. There are times I wonder how this guy sleeps. He seems to be like a vampire. He is always there at every funeral, at every class event. I mean, I know they're going virtual now. But any community event that people need him at, he is there really trying to empower, enrich the community, and most importantly, provide resources for the community. He's a person much like me who believes that it's jobs and opportunities that stop bullets. Here now is our interview with Dominic Davis, recorded on September 1st. Dom Davis, thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you guys. We might also mention here that uh, as we are having this conversation, Dom is actually in his car driving. Hopefully, uh, stay safe, brother. We don't want you to get hurt out there as you're, <laughs> as you're making your way around, around the neighborhood and stuff. Well, let's start first with the event that you recently held along with folks from other organizations in which you brought a coffin out, didn't have a body in it, but it did have uh, kind of an image, a laminated image in there with a question mark. Tell us about that event and what that was all about. We put a coffin right on Rainier Avenue and Martin Luther King, where, they, where the intersection is. Eventually, later on, they, they put it out in the middle of the street. But we put the coffin out there because it was a representation of the violence that's happening, the gun violence that's happening in our community. Who's next is what it was. You know, who's going to end up in the coffin next? And, and we wanted to catch the attention not only of the community as with the shock value, but we also wanted to catch the attention of key county council, city council, the mayor's office, organizations like that. As we were doing that, the speeches we were having, when we were speaking out, we were speaking out against the fact that uh, we put an ask in to city council to do some proactive preventive work against the gun violence in our community. And when we put the ask in, it was wrapped up in the decrim Seattle ask, and it got vetoed. And the goal of it was to be able to set up hubs around the city of Seattle where the hotspots are, where most of the shootings are happening. And then work with a number of the OGs in each one of those communities to bring them in and get them training and pay them to work with the outreach workers and leverage the leadership of the OGs with the skill set of the case managers and outreach workers, and then start going out and providing resources and services for the young homies that are out here with the guns, deeply involved in the game. Start giving them the opportunity to get a job, to get housing, 
right? Train them up, get, go through uh, internships and, and apprenticeships and, and just give them opportunity, man. Even give them some $100 gift cards to go get food or whatever they need and just try to start building relationships with them to let them know there's another option. That coffin was out there for us to get a number of different messages out. And also the call to the carpet, we want the city council to come back after recess and override the veto is what we want because we need to get these, this money into our community so we can start employing the same people that they look at as a detriment to the community. We can employ them and bring those same people to be assets to the community once we give them the opportunity to. They just, they just don't see nothing else. We got to give them something else. Dom, how bad is the gun violence right now in Seattle? And I guess we're looking at South Seattle, right? Well, yeah, South, South, the inner central district. Let me put it to you like this. And this was just, this is a number I'm going to throw out to you that was probably almost two weeks ago. In 28 days, we had like 35, 36 shootings. A lot of the shootings don't get reported. We know about them, but a lot of the shootings don't get reported. And so we're in that position where we are so connected to the community that we know when the shootings are happening. We know when bullets are flying and nobody gets hit. We know all that. And we know when people do get hit right away. The violence has been at an all-time high, man. We've had 28 murders so far since August. We've had 28 murders. We've had more since now coming into September. I think we got more than that. But we had 28 murders, bro. Last year, the whole year, we had 28 murders. So, Tom, you know, there are multiple narratives that, that are coming out about, you know, what is driving this violence. For you, what do you think is the largest driver of this uptick in violence right now? Honestly, man, there's a couple of different things. One of the things is, and I've been saying this before COVID even hit, I even had some meetings with some elected officials. Almost, I won't throw nobody under the bus, no people under the bus, because I got to oh, keep relationships, right? Well, if you uh, want to, I mean, you know, this is, yeah. this is a podcast. I would throw the people under the bus if I thought it would do any good. So <laughs> let me put the, but if it ain't going to do no good, it's just a wasted body that I'm throwing under the bus. So, um, there's two things. We had this influx of guns hit our community. I don't know where they came from. I don't know who brought them into the city. People are literally handing our kids guns for free almost. I've had kids say, man, I can get a gun faster than I can get some weed. Everybody got a gun. So when you put a gun in a 14, 15, 16-year-old hands, and then you are constantly being bombarded with the messages of being a gangster, a killer, a hitter, you know what I mean? All the music, all the videos, all the movies, all the, everybody, you know? So that's one of the things. And that, that was happening at the beginning before COVID even hit. That's one thing. Another thing is when COVID hit, COVID shut everything down. We don't have no AAU summer basketball. We don't have no AAU track or regular track or school track. We don't have football practice, spring ball, all that stuff. Like just go down the, there's so many hundreds and hundreds and thousands of kids that would be on football fields and basketball courts and tracks right now. You know what I'm saying? You, you go to a, a track meet, you got three, four, five, six hundred people there sometimes. You go to bas AAU basketball, if they play five, six games a day. They, they're in tournaments for whole weeks. They're going in and out of town. Doing, there's so many different things that got snatched from underneath these young people. So now what do you have left? Social media. What are you seeing on social media? Gang banging. Right. So now these gangs are smart. These gangs ain't stupid. Some of these gangs, bro, which I, I would love to be able to throw the names of these gangs out here, but I don't want to put myself in that position. Some of these gangs been out here recruiting these young cats. We got a, a lot of young cats being recruited. We call them fresh off the porch. 
wet behind the ears. They don't know what they're doing. They don't even know who they're shooting at. They're just being pointed in the direction. And call, I had one of the little homies just got shot up in Kent the other day. He was in a grocery store because he's the older brother of another little homie that's locked up right now that was a big hitter in the streets. Little guy walks up to him and says, are you so-and-so's brother? He goes, yeah. Pulls out a gun and lights him up three times. Right? He lived through it. He got shot in the chest twice and in the arm, but he lived through it, thank God. But basically, you got hitters that don't even know who they're – you had to walk up to him and ask him who he was because the cat's outside, so I think that's him. Go in there and find out and shoot him if it is. These young cats are being manipulated right now, man. Now the hot thing is, am I a shooter? Am I a hitter? You become the hot boy for how many guns, How many times you done shot at somebody. You become the hot boy. Well, Dom, I know you've been a huge proponent of city council and King County Council um, allocating funds for preventative measures. Now, when I, when I attended the event on, on Friday, you talked about uh, you know, the city council budget that uh, was recently passed and then vetoed a few weeks ago by Mayor Durkin. In, in that original budget, that was uh, the rebalancing budget that was passed by the city council, there was you know, three to four million that was going to be directed you know, towards your organization's uh, community passageways. Now that that money doesn't appear to be coming in, at least you know, as of the recording of this podcast, can you l- talk a little bit about that? And, and at, our listeners can't see, but you're wearing a shirt that says budget for justice. Can you talk a little bit about what your reaction was to the one, the veto, and and two, in your viewpoint, the need uh, for some funds, you know, and significant funds, I should say, for gang and violence prevention. Yeah, that proposal we put in was over for over four million, right? What we did was we collaborated and we worked with three other organizations: Alive and Free, Safe Passages, and Urban Families. And so we put all came together and said. We want to come together as community-based organizations. Let's start safety teams. Let's put safety teams in our community. So when we put the ask in, we didn't want to put the ask in separately away from DCRIM Seattle because we wanted to have a united front, right? Because usually when it comes down to to situations like this, they'll decide to fund one thing and, and use it as an excuse not to fund another one and separate the community. So we wanted to have a united front saying, all this that DCRIM is asking for and what we need needs to be all wrapped up in one because all of it ends up being community safety. And so politics became a wedge issue because some people don't rock with DCRIM Seattle and then some people don't agree with defunding the police at a certain level and pouring those resources back into community. Um, so when we wrapped our ass up with DCRIM, the politics became an issue to be played with. And so that political football started being leveraged and we ended up getting the bill passed and voted on unanimously, but then it got vetoed by the mayor's office. And I honestly think if I would have put the ask in separately, that we would have got that ask funded. But then that's how those wedge issues happen. And so now it's us against them and we're actually all community representatives and they keep us, you know, at each other's throat by throwing out resources. So now don't get me wrong, the mayor's office, the HSD department is giving us a 300K or so to do a small portion of it. I got three employees I hired and we're doing community response, community safety, but there's only three people. You know what I mean? What can three people really honestly do? And what we do is show up to scenes of different shootings and, and gather intel and data and then support the families of the victims. We pay for some funerals. We pay for some 
food for funerals. The kid is in the hospital. You know, we even try to support the family through whatever financial way we can and whatever moral support we can and social support we can. So we're doing that at a low level. And actually, really, some of the kids have been shot and had bullet wounds, but were scared to go to the hospital. I had to go and grab them and rush them to hospitals and make phone calls to make sure that the police doesn't interrogate them because they were scared to get arrested or whatever because they were in the middle of a shootout. I've done, we've done work like that where we make sure that the police doesn't interfere with these kids getting the treatment they need to get bullet wounds treated, you know? And then um, I've also got kids put in safe spaces in different hotels to heal up from their bullet wounds and going through their surgery processes because some of the places that they were staying at were getting shot at, right? So we were able to, so we got some young people posted up in some hotels and my team is working with them daily and, and, and making sure they're okay and we're giving, making sure they got food and we're doing it at a low level, low level, a, a low scale because we only had 300 grand awarded to us. So that's what the mayor's talking about when she says, and we're, we're supporting community passageways. Yeah, they are supporting community passageways. We have another contract with HSD for over 500 grand, like 590 grand that we're working with called Deep Dive. And the Deep Dive program is the prosecutors had a list of kids that are more likely to be shot or shoot somebody in the next 12 months. When they got that list, I, I was like, well, I don't want no systems controlling that list. Give us that list and let us go recruit these young people and give them an opportunity to do something different with their life instead of them um, being you know, criminalized. And so we got that list. We went after the top 20. We went up with 27 young hitters in our program. So we're working closely with them. Out of 27 kids, we got 11 of them full-time jobs now. And, and uh, we, everybody got housing, and we, and we pay them $1,100 a month to go through the programming. But that's another contract that I have with HSD. So HSD is funding us at a good level, and I respect working with them. They're an awesome department, and I thank the mayor for you know, supporting that piece. But at the end of the day, our kids are still dying, and there's still a ton of shootings, and we need to do something more. Because you all know if there was white kids that was dying every day like this and the murder rate was like that and the shooting rate was that and it was white kids, we wouldn't have to go ask for resources. They'd start all kinds of programs and throw all kinds of resources out there to fix this. But it's our kids that's dying. Right. Dom, say you're able to finally get the money, then I understand you probably will recruit some more or hire some more employees to help you. But I guess, how does it then end up helping the young people out there that need the help? So here's what we've been doing. I've been personally, I've been having a series of meetings with a bunch of OGs from different gang sets. These are the shot callers. These are the cats that run these different neighborhoods. And we've got a lot of young people underneath them. We even had a meeting where we were able to bring leadership from rival gangs all together in one space. And, and even they were like, I would have never thought this could happen. You know, we were able to get this done. The reason why I'm telling you that is because I've been vetting them and getting them ready to be hired to do this work and go through the training and then surround them with other um, outreach workers and case managers that have been out here doing this work already so they could, they could even learn more. Those are the people we're going to leverage. When we get the funding, we want to create hubs in each hotspot. And as we have a hub in each hotspot of the city that where most of the shootings are happening, we have those OGs that kind of run those areas, working with us, getting paid. You know what I'm saying? A nice living wage, a health care package, stuff that they normally couldn't get due to their criminal background. Right. And then take them through a series of trainings, get them surrounded with support systems. And we're going to use those OGs and the leverage and leadership they got in the community already to take us to the young people that we need to get to and start saying, hey, man, it's time to do something different. We got a job for you, an internship, apprenticeship, housing. When I'm not on the street talking to the little homies that don't even really know me. You know what I mean? I know they're hitters. As soon as I say, bro, what if I gave you a job making 
40 grand a year, 35 grand a year, whatever, starting out and was able to get you housing. Would you be ready to stop? Man, they're like, sign me up right now. Every single one. I haven't had one say, nah, man, I'm going to stay out here and bang. They, they don't have no opportunities. So what we want to do is build up hubs in each area, leverage the OGs in those areas, surround them with case managers and, and outreach workers, and then get out here and be proactive and preventive and not wait for somebody to get shot and then respond to a shooting like the police have to do. Get out here and say, we got stuff for you. We want to pull you out of this. Are you ready to make a change? And when they see their leader, their OG, working a real job legitimately, talking in the way that he's going to be talking to them, saying, I, I can pull you out too. Man, you got to get the head of the snake and the body will follow, you know? Saddam, so can you talk a little bit about how you got to where you are right now? You've had some rough times in your life, and you've sort of been where some of these young people that you're out there helping, you've been there. Yeah, man, I, um, I left home at like 14, 13, turning 14. I got put out, whatever, and um, I, had to, I survived in the streets. I, I got a lot of family and all that, but I, I hit the streets, man, and was around all the elements, you know, that I, I, and all the influences. And, and I started seeing the older cats having all the jewelry and the cars and the money, pulling out big wads. And, and I was always a little neat. Everybody always loved me. I was always loved because I was a really good athlete. And, and I, had, I was, you know, thought I was a little player with the girls. And so I had that little reputation. So the OGs kind of started taking me under their wing and kind of just let me ride in their cars with them. And all that. sometimes they let me drive their cars and Cadillacs and their Corvettes and stuff. So I got influenced by that. I'm going to get money. I'm going to get money. I'm going to make money. And so I ended up hustling most of my life, man. And I worked my way up the food chain in the dope game. And I, I, I was moving a lot of weight. You know, I was flying around different states and was making a lot of money, man. And, and what comes along with that? A lot of death and destruction, a lot of trauma, you know, because it's a, it's a game that you got to survive through. And so going through that process and, and growing up and being in the game and in the streets for so many years and, you know, going to funeral after funeral after funeral, Homie after homie getting killed, dying, going to prison, all that kind of stuff, man. I, I just, I, I started waking myself up because I seen generation after generation going down the same track. And as I educated myself and started reading and, and getting my own, giving myself my own education and listening to different speakers, powerful speakers about our history and learning about Marcus Garvey and all that and Louis Farrakhan and Huey P. Newton, H. Rap Brown, you know, started listening to different people, man. And it just changed my mind. I was like, I got to do something different. I got educated on how I was literally tearing my community up, how I was literally blood was on my hands. And I, and I realized it. And so when I started seeing the young cats, cause I started coaching football, basketball and track to give back to the community. And I love coaching sports. And I started seeing these young cats that were falling into the same traps. They go through my football program and then they end up, I end up at their funeral. And I was like, I can't do this no more. I can't be that. I, I was saying, you guys don't need to do this. You don't need to do that. But they're looking at me like, we want that kind of car, coach. We want money like you got, coach. We want to be like you in the street, coach. And I'm like, man. So then I had my own sons, too. And I didn't want them to go down that same track. And it just ended up being an awakening that I had, man, which is a longer testimony. That's a whole nother time. That's another conversation. But I had the awakening. And now I said, I'm going to dedicate the rest of my life to save as many lives as I possibly can. And that's what I'm doing now, man. Well, Coach, I know you do a lot of your work primarily in South King County, South Seattle, but this is a city that, you know, has a, a lot of affluence in it, a lot of, you know, a lot of the power elite, quote unquote. How can we get to a point where we kind of can impress upon people that whether you live in Mercer Island or Magnolia, 
what happens in the south end of Seattle still impacts you and, and our city? How do we get everybody to, to come on board in, in caring about, you know, what happens to our, our black and brown youth who experience gun violence and are impacted by it in, in our uh, city? What can you say? Uh, injustice anywhere is an injustice everywhere, right? So one of the first things that pops in my head is the shooting that happened in downtown Seattle when all the middle class and <laughs> And white folks got in the uproar, right? Systems folks, everybody got in the uproar. They wanted to, everybody wanted to interview. Everybody was getting a million calls for interviews. Everybody wanted to have meetings. And, oh, my God, this is an emergency. Man, it was crazy, right? But that happened because the white utopia bubble got busted. Who cares if you hear about shootings all the time in the hood or South King County? Who cares about Because if it ain't affecting me, it ain't on my doorstep. I can just go, oh, that's too bad, or, or those kids are crazy, or those bad kids, those gangbangers, and, and just be pointing the finger and shaking my head, right? But where we're at right now is things are spilling over into their community now. Now the North End is getting a lot of shootings now, if you haven't heard about that. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of North End shootings happening right now, man. Another thing is this whole movement that happened, this whole revolution that we're facing right now, right? People are, 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 are standing up together in unity all kind of ethnicities, educational backgrounds, economical backgrounds are standing up together and fighting for justice. And if you really got a heart for justice, you need to really understand that everything that happens in our hood, it affects you in one way or another. It affects us economically, socially, and politically. So coach, let me ask you this, because on Friday at, at, at the event, you talked about, you, had, you just came from a funeral of a young man that morning as somebody who has interviewed you several times, I know that that wasn't the first time that you've, you've come for a funeral, then to go into uh, a community event and, and address the community. So what continues to give you hope these days, especially when there just seems to be so much, you know, wall-to-wall tragedy at, at points here at, at, this, at this stage in time? You know what, bro? And I've been having this conversation lately a lot. I tend to focus on what needs to be done and, and the failures than I do with the successes, and I don't celebrate successes like I should. And this is what my team is telling me and some of the people I've been having these conversations with. They're like, you need to celebrate it. Because, if man, I just told you about 27 young, deeply gang-involved kids, right? Out of those kids, 11 of them have full-time jobs. One of them, and there's a lot of them are facing federal charges. One of them is facing federal charges for selling, selling machine guns, right? right? Because of the work we've been able to do with him, he is now a case manager for an organization that does really good work for the lead co-lead organization that does a lot of good work in the community. Right. And so I got him a full-time job as a case manager. He has like 20 plus people on his case management list and he's giving people housing resources, food, clothes, getting them plugged in. And he loves the work, loves the work. Right. And because we've been able to do that with him. And he also talks to us daily. Actually, he calls me five, 10 times a day. I'm tired of this guy. He just blows my phone up. But we, we have deep conversations. And in the work that we're doing with him, the federal prosecutors, because they see what I've done with this kid, said, we got to meet with you. We want to meet with you. We did a f- couple of phone conversations, some Zooms. And they were like, can we meet in person? We want to talk. They came down with the top federal prosecutors and sat out outside at my office in the parking lot on the, on the benches. And, we, and they said, we want to do something different in the federal courts. We see what you've been able to do. And we've been researching what you've been doing. And, and the case that I'm talking about, they're like, you did something incredible with this kid. Like, we want to do this more. Can we talk about that? So I get hope from conversations like that of federal courts 
I'm talking about the feds now. 99% success rate of, of locking people up are saying, we want to do some diversion work, and we want to do it through you, through community hey, passageways. I, Dom, I want to understand exactly, okay, if I was a young man and you came to me to get me off the street, what would I end up doing if you took me in? So if you, if I took, first we do an assessment. I find out, you know, what your living situation is. You know, are you couch surfing? Are you out here homeless? Are you living with your grandma? You know, like, what are you, how old are you? You know, you might be 17, 18, whatever. You might be 20, 21, whatever. So, uh, you know, we work with people up to 27. I'll get that, get that information from you. I, I, have you ever had a job before? You never had a job? When's, your, when's the last time you enrolled in school? When's you, when you've been in school? So I find all that information out, and then we start putting a goal plan together. Okay. And then me and my team will meet and say, okay, this kid, th here's the need for this young person. You know, we'll set those goals. This first goal, let's get him back in school. We want to get him back in school by this day. So let's work on that first. Now he's back in school. Let's get it scheduled. He's out of school every day. Now let's get him plugged into a part-time job. And then we'll make sure it's like an internship or, or an apprenticeship so we can get trained on the job. And so we'll put that plan together. So you'll actually have a plan that will go down and start not checking those boxes as we get that plan in place. And if you're facing criminal charges, we will reach out to your defense attorney. Nine times out of 10 of defense attorneys, that's the biggest referral source. Defense attorneys like, help us with this case. Help us with that case. So they're constantly hitting us up. Probation officers hit us up. Even some prosecutors are saying, we want to refer this kid to you guys. And if he does what he's supposed to do with you guys, we'll, we'll divert his charges out. So we'll work on finding out what the criminal charges are, start meeting with the legal team and, and figure out how we navigate that and then get you on the right track. But you'll be assigned a community ambassador that will be in contact with you, that you can contact whenever you need to. We'll start knocking some barriers down for you to go, making sure you get to court. We'll pick you up for court. We'll go to court with you. We'll, we'll talk in your behalf in court. We'll sit down and have meetings with the defense attorney. Then we'll even plug you in with the job. And nine times out of 10, it'll be a job that I'm connected to with the employer. So, you know, we'll talk to the employer. Hey, look, man, this kid got some of this stuff going on, this going on, but he has a support system behind him. Go ahead and get this kid opportunity. We'll bring him in and, and we'll support him. Make sure he gets to work. Make sure he has whatever tools or, or, or clothes he needs, whatever. And so now what we do is build relationship as we're doing, going through this process. And then we'll pay him a stipend for everything that we have him do. We're going to make sure that the kid has some money in their pocket so they don't have to go out and rob or steal for what they need. So we'll make sure we pay them a stipend. So come to the peacemaking healing circles. Come to the workshops. Do the, uh, our curriculum homework or, or even sit on those youth advisory committees. And all these systems are constantly asking us for kids to sit on panels or focus groups. Well, I'm like, well, if you want my kids to be on these panels, they're going to share their intellectual property. So I'm going to need you to pay them. Right? So you got to pay my kids. 50 to $100, depending on what you guys are doing. I want my kids to get paid. Every time you ask them to come speak, they need to be paid for that. Right? So that if people are, oh, yeah, sure, no problem. You know, we'll, we'll get that done. We'll take care of that, whatever. And that's where we're at, you know what I mean? And so then as we keep doing that and building relationships, and you start seeing yourself in a different light. When you get a six, 15, 16-year-old and you sit him in a room full of people in suits and ties and him and a couple of people that look like him are sitting there answering questions about what their experience is in the criminal justice system, what their experiences are in the community, what their experiences are with gang violence, and they're sharing this stuff. And these people are listening and asking questions and taking notes. You kind of walk out of there like, man, I feel a little important. Like, these people are really, they care about what I'm saying. You never had that before. And then you have people that we say, we love you, bro. Like, we tell them, man, we're, we're, I'm, people call me big bro. They don't even call me by my name. All the homies, all the, all the young ladies, they call me big bro. Like, I'm their big bro now. I'm, or I'm Uncle Dom. 
right? We become a family, man. And we give them a dynamic that they never really experienced before, bro. Well, I'll call you Coach Dom, and I'll say, <laughs> and, <laughs> and I'll ask, you know, with there being so much of this conversation around this sort of binary of either, you know, we defund S- at the police, are we defended, are we, we add to their budget, are we subtract for the, from the budget? Can you talk a little bit, Dom, about if, if public safety and community safety is our shared goal, why your approach you know, might be the, the better one to ensure a safe community? Well, the first thing that pops in my mind is we have to understand what public safety really is. I think we've been brainwashed and indoctrinated to believe that police means the public is safe, right? Which we see that that's really not the, not the real truth, but police can only respond to something after it happens. Police are not going to be proactive and preventive and make sure resources get to where they need to go to stop crime from happening in the community. Right. So the approach that we have is let's go out and give people resources that they need. Let me put it to you like this. If I'm getting paid thirty five hundred to four thousand a month, I'm 19 years old. I've been in gangs, but now I got an opportunity to get four thousand a month and go to work every day, five days a week. Right. I'm going to be thinking twice before I want to go out and do a drive by shooting. You know what I'm saying? I got my own apartment. I ain't never had my own place to live. I ain't never had a job before. And now I got a job and I'm getting four grand a month, 3,500 a month. That's, that's a lot of money. I've been broke my whole life. All I've ever had was a gun and clips and bullets. So when you do that, bro, and give the resources, put the resources where they need to be at and in the hands of the people that need them, that's public safety. We have to revisit what public safety actually looks like. And data already shows that when you're in a community that has all the resources that are needed, crime drops drastically. Data, there's plenty of data out there that shows that. Crime drops drastically. But when you're out here with scraps and everybody's trying to survive, and then you got all this anger and frustration that's been passed down generation after generation, it becomes part of your DNA. How do you combat that, man? So public safety, man, has to be revisited. It's not about police with guns. That's not public safety. Public safety is when you're able to go out, build relationships, make connections, and, and open up doors of opportunity for economic success, social success, and political success. Dom, I want you to know that if you would have been my football coach when I was a kid, I'd have run through walls for you. <laughs> no doubt about it. I mean, just to listen to you and uh, the way you're able to uh, express what you're doing and what you're trying to do for young people. Let's stay in touch and find out how things work out for you to get your funding. But Dom Davis, thank you so much. CEO, founder of Community Passageways. It's a Seattle-based nonprofit felony diversion and prevention program, changing lives. And Dom, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Now you continue to drive there, but be careful, okay? Yeah, <laughs> okay. yeah. Please, Dom. We yeah. we need you in this community, so please. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, right. guys. I appreciate you guys, man. Have a good one. Life on the Margins is a production of the South Seattle Emerald. Our music is courtesy of Seattle artist, Dre's. Our producers are Jeff Shaw and Hans Anderson. Please stay safe, be well, wear a damn mask, and we'll talk more later. I was born in the Central District, raised in the South End. I'm a homegrown kid, yep, 206 living. Used to play flyers up when I lived up on Union. Pushed it out to Orcas, and eventually the Kenyans. Didn't have much, but thankful for all we was giving. It was all hood until we didn't see credit.